Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I'm Mark Jorgensmeyer from the Orfla Center for Global International Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And today we have with us really a remarkable guest, uh, probably Egypt's most prominent sociologist, one of the world's uh, best-known human rights activists, Saad Ibrahim. Uh, from uh, Egypt. He's now uh, at the teaching in Istanbul. He's also uh, based in Doha. Uh, for many years, he uh, played a very important role in Egypt. He had his own television program. He was a, uh, said to be a confidant of uh, Prime Minister Mubarak, but then uh, things turned uh, difficult. Uh, he was imprisoned for several years by the Egyptian government. Uh, said for the reason of uh, advocating uh, human rights and, and free elections. Uh, he's out now, but still uh, the relationship with the Egyptian government is not the best in the world. But he's with us today, and we're so pleased that uh, you're here to talk about uh, Islam and human rights, uh, the situation with uh, politics in the Middle East, uh, and the kind of long-range prognosis for peace in that troubled part of the world. Uh, we're so pleased to have you with us, uh, Saad Ibrahim. Thank you, Mark, for hosting me on this campus and this program. It is always a pleasure to be in Santa Barbara. Beautiful weather, beautiful nature. And uh, I am delighted to always meet with your students. Last night we had a nice conversation with some of them. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the week to meet more of your colleagues and your students. Yes, situation in our part of the world, not just in Egypt, but all over the Middle East, is pretty troubled. And I am working along with others to bring both democracy, peace, and development to our region. Well, let's review your own situation for a second. I mean, for years you were very close to uh, Prime Minister Mubarak, uh, President Mubarak, um, and then something happened. What, what was it, uh, the stance of the Ibn Khaldun Center that you direct on human rights? Uh, uh, what was it that made you appear to be problematic for the Egyptian government? For the regime, mm -hmm. for the Mubarak regime. I think it is blowing the whistle on their scheme to pass on the presidency from the father to the son. An article I wrote on the succession scheme that was being uh, worked on. It had already happened in Syria, and I assumed that there are three or four other Arab countries that may follow suit, including Egypt. And it was that article. The date appeared was the day of my arrest. Uh -huh. So this is probably the most immediate cause for falling out from the regime's grace. The family considered me as a friend. So to talk about that was considered a betrayal of the family, betrayal of friendship. The first lady, that's Mrs. Mubarak, was my student. She did her master's with me. The two children, including the heir apparent or the successor to me, also took courses with me. They were not as full-time students with me as their mother, but uh, they took courses with me. So I knew the family fairly well. I knew the president, President Mubarak, fairly well. And he called on me several times, both as a vice president and as a president, 
And I gave him my counsel to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. However, when it comes to issues that concern the country, it, is, it goes beyond personal mm-hmm. friendship and personal relations. Mm-hmm. So I have to speak my mind. I have to, as an intellectual, I have to debate issues in as objective uh, a manner as possible. I, that did not suit them very well. Now, I know that many of us know of your case because of the international uh, outcry at the time. The New York Times especially uh, picked up the, uh, uh, the cause of, of uh, freeing you from uh, imprisonment. I know there was a cover story in the New York Times magazine. Uh, and eventually, uh, it appears that international pressure uh, seemed to have worked. But what, what were the, um, there was actually uh, court trials, and what were the charges that uh, were levied against you? And then and tell us a little well, bit Well, there were the several charges, and as it will turn out, uh, the high court, after three trials, will throw them all out mm. and will exonerate me and my colleagues. Because, by the way, I was not the only one imprisoned. Everybody in my center, my research center, my think tank, mm. called the Ibn Khaldun Center for Development Studies, were actually arrested and also thrown in detention and ultimately tried and sentenced to prison along with me. I was, of course, the main (laughs) defendant, and they were all considered to be co-defendants. They got anywhere from a year to three years, but I got seven years. Uh, Now, the charges ranged from defaming the good name of Egypt to receiving funding from foreign organizations without authorization from the government. Oh, you government. received grants from abroad, is that Yes, that yes, it was that? from the European Union. I see. Uh, to uh, questions of treason, mm-hmm. questions of uh, talking to quote-unquote foreign enemies, uh, publicizing or uh, opening up subjects such as minority rights, uh, human rights, as if the country does not respect these rights, and that's considered also to be a, an act of, uh, uh, an offensive act as far as the Egyptian government is concerned. So there was a range of these charges. And in two trials, I was found guilty. I was convicted to seven years mm. until I got to the high court, which is the only independent court in Egypt because its judges are not chosen by the president or by the minister of justice, but by their own colleagues, their own peers. Mm. So they are selected by appellate judges in a general assembly uh, by second balloting. And that court is known since 1923, for over 80 years, to be the only independent court in Egypt. But by the time you get there, it can take anywhere from three to seven years. Mm. And in your case, it took... Three years. Took three years. And so that's, it was actually the high court that uh, it was. made the determination. Yes. What the international pressure charges. did was basically to make the human rights issue high profile mm-hmm. in Egypt and in the region. Now, I, I know that the prison term was not very comfortable in your case. I, I noticed you walked with a limp. What, what happened? Well, you know, it's... Uh, there are, they used Chinese methods of torture. Mm-hmm. They knew that a prominent public figure like myself 
would probably be visited by the uh, International Red Cross, by Amnesty, by the Human Rights Watch, and so on. So they tried in their method of torture during the interrogation not to leave any visible marks mm. on my body. So they use this water dripping method and sleep deprivation, in my case, for 45 days. Oh my. And that caused me serious strokes mm. that nearly paralyzed me. So when I, by the time I got out of prison, I was in a wheelchair, I could not walk. Oh. And I could not hold anything. And it took nearly three years mm. of surgeries, of physical therapy, until I regained some of my health. Mm. Well, even ability now to you walk, walk, I noticed with difficulty. With difficulty right. Right. Uh, clearly, this was meant to intimidate not only you, but your center and anyone who wanted to speak out. Um, has that been successful? Or is this... uh, no, it hasn't. It, it worked for about two years. Mm -hmm. There was a shilling effect after my arrest. And people began to kind of low, uh, lay low and to uh, refuse grants or to deal even with foreigners for research, for anything else. Until I was acquitted, my acquittal revived the whole NGO community, the whole civil society community in Egypt. And more and more people began to challenge the regime. Hmm. One of them became... Uh, also internationally well-known, and that is Ayman Noor, yes. who established an independent party and challenged the ruling party, mm -hmm. and in fact ran against President Mubarak right. in 2005, and he was, out of 10 candidates, he was the second highest mm -hmm. vote-getter, and he's now in prison. So Mubarak also imprisoned him. Right. So yes, there are people who are speaking and out, but they get punished. And you, once again, I'm told, uh, are, are threatened with uh, imprisonment. What, what is your current situation? My current situation is that the regime uh, felt defeated when the high court acquitted me. So since 2003, the date of the acquittal, they have been accumulating evidence against me, or at least uh, mm. what they think is evidence against mm. me, to put me back in prison. And they got their chance in the summer of 2004 when I, was, uh, when I met with President uh, Bush in Prague in a conference for dissidents from all over the world. And he dropped in and met with some of us one-on-one -on -one, uh, after he made his speech. When the news uh, reached Egypt, Mubarak just hit the ceiling. Uh -huh. Because someone, he thought you were negotiating with Bush. Uh, uh, regime that? change, yes. yes. And uh -huh. how their uh, quote-unquote normal citizen uh -huh. meets with the head of a state. <laughs> he thinks that only heads of state should meet each other. Uh -huh. So for him, that considered, was considered to be part of a regime change uh -huh. conspiracy. Well, what did he think you were trying to do with Change Bush? the regime, uh -huh. yes, yes. And he thought you to had be, that Yeah, they used uh, certain terms like Karazai. Uh -huh. Here is a new Karazai, Saad Ibrahim, like the guy in Afghanistan, the uh -huh. president of Afghanistan. Uh -huh. And, uh, of course, none of that was the case. I mean, President Bush was just basically uh, curious of what's going on in the region and wanted to hear an independent view, and wanted to assure me that he still 
loyal to the democracy promotion, which I had doubted in one of my weekly columns that, uh -huh. uh, that he's serious, and apparently he got that column translated. So he wanted to assure me that he's still very loyal and still very serious about democracy promotion. I want to ask you about that, about how you feel about the American role in, in Egypt. But before I ask about that, let me just finish up the your current situation now. So uh, can you go back to Egypt freely? So what Mubarak did after this meeting with Bush, which was in June, early June, June on June 5th, 2007, is that he uh, apparently got members of his own political party to file uh, legal cases or litigations against uh, So me. once again now you have a barrage about of legal 21, cases. 21 right. pending cases. If convicted in all of them, I will be serving about 60 years in prison. And, and are they the same kind of charges? Of, yeah, uh, yeah, know, same old charges plus, plus few right. more, mm -hmm. uh, new ones. And uh, the, uh, my lawyers and my family and my university, the American University in Cairo, they all advised me to stay out of the country until something So you're happened. a man without a country? I am stateless for the time being. Uh -huh. But luckily, I um, got asylum in several countries, offered me asylum. One of them was Qatar, the state of Qatar. And another is Turkey, uh, Romania, Italy. And I always, I'm welcomed always in the state of Santa Barbara. Yes, of course, Santa Barbara <laughs> always welcomes you. But in the meantime, your wife and your family... Still in Egypt. They're still in Egypt. Yes. <laughs> they come and see me when I'm close physically mm -hmm. to the country. Mm -hmm. And they are coming actually this week to uh -huh. see me in Bloomington, Indiana, uh -huh. where my, uh, the wife of my family still lives there. She is uh -huh. an American, my wife, Barbara. And our family lives in uh, Plumpton, uh, Indiana. And our mother is celebrating her uh, 85th birthday. Oh, nice. But let week. me get this straight. Your, your wife, who's an American, she is allowed to live in Egypt. And you, the Egyptian, uh, have to isn't come to places that, like America. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? <laughs> right. It really is one of those ironies of the globalized but screwed up world of the... Well, this can't go on forever. I mean, when, when will you be allowed to return to Egypt? Well, I'm hoping that either these cases, actually three of them have been ruled on in my favor. Mm. So even the courts did not see uh, that the charges are supported enough or serious enough. So the trials so they, can go on in your absence. and maybe, Well, they do. Mm -hmm. They have so mm -hmm. far. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, uh, either Mubarak will uh, step down or will pass away, or I will pass away. Hmm. One of us, it has to be resolved somehow, yeah. but I'm optimistic. Well, he's already uh, one of the longest uh, ruling. ruling it, uh, exactly. He's the third, <laughs> third ruling uh, uh, figure in Egyptian history, yeah. 6,000 years of Egyptian history. After whom? After Ramses II. And Ramses II. Which well, ruled some 4,000 years ago. And Muhammad Ali, who, which ru who ruled around the turn of the 19th century, 18th century. And he's the third. Mm -hmm. 27 so years so far. So it's no surprise that he thinks in terms of dynasty rather than democracy. He does, yes. And he wants to install his son, one of his sons, mm -hmm. as his successor. And, and that's he, what I blew the whistle on. 
yes. back in the year 2000. And yet he's made overtures uh, to uh, free elections, uh, possibly in response to the American calls for more democracy in Egypt. Uh, but that's Overture a is a word, <laughs> but never serious enough to allow a serious, uh, authentic challenge. So, as I said, he put one of the challenger in prison, and here I am, was the first challenger and mm -hmm. out of the country. And he dismissed two of Sadat's nephews, mm -hmm. who seemed to be likely competitor with his son. Mm -hmm. They had name recognition, Sadat name, just like his name. Right. And they had won seats. They are very popular in their respective districts. Right. And they posed a real threat to the scheme of installing his son. Right. So he managed to again throw them out of the People's Assembly, that's the parliament, mm -hmm. even though they were elected. Uh, he concocted some uh, schemes mm -hmm. to uh, get a majority of his party members, so he has a majority in the, in the parliament, mm -hmm. to uh, unseat these two nephews of President, late President Mubarak. Mm -hmm. So the man is determined, obviously, to stay in power mm -hmm. and to keep his family in power. And we are determined to get him out of power. <laughs> I hope you're successful. But the American uh, political position uh, around the world, uh, at least uh, yeah. publicly, is to advocate democracy. And uh, uh, supposedly this is one of the things that the Bush administration has uh, done. Has the American role been in Egyptian human rights been positive or negative? It was positive for one year mm -hmm. out of the eight years of Bush, mm -hmm. and that's the year 2005. Mm -hmm. However, once democracy brought into power, some people not to the liking of the Bush administration, they backed off, side, you know, backtracked, mm -hmm. retreated from this pro democracy promotion. So, objectively, yes, they were good for one year, uh, but then they have uh, been in a retreat mm. in the last three years. And unfortunately, it had hurt our cause. It had, because again, other things that the Bush administration has done in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere in the world, uh, even the promotion, American democracy promotion, uh, one, was not taken as seriously. Two, it has given democracy a bad name. So in Egypt, is the, is the U.S. seen more as an agency that props up the Mubarak regime or, or an agency that calls for democratic change? Well, as I said, for one year, people thought, mm -hmm. finally, Americans are doing something good. Mm -hmm. But that was, did not last very long. Mm -hmm. So they, America is to, to, to blame for maintaining autocrats like Mubarak uh, in power. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of the blame now rests on the shoulders of the United States administration. Mm -hmm. We are hopeful that at least with the new president, whoever is going to be, uh, democracy will restore its good name mm -hmm. and America will get back on the moral high ground mm -hmm. that it had historically mm -hmm. occupied Mm -hmm. in defense of human rights and in defense of liberty. You know, throughout the region, the Middle East, the U.S. has uh, seems to, under the Bush administration, had adopted a position of not talking with enemies or, or terrorists, those uh, people that uh, 
and groups that it feels uh, is not uh, supporting the democratic process, whether it's uh, Medinejad in Iran or uh, the Hamas leaders. Um, I, I take it that uh, you don't uh, think this is an, a good position to take? No, even though I disagree with many of these uh, figures, like Ahmadinejad and with the leaders of Hamas, as a democracy advocate, as a human rights activist, I am of the opinion that you should talk to every party in a conflict. You do not talk to friends with friends you don't need to negotiate. Uh, it is with adversaries, with opponents, with enemies mm -hmm. that if you want to engage without a war, mm -hmm. you must talk to them. So well, I'm of the opinion that, yes, we should talk to everyone who's willing to talk and we can lay down our conditions, mm -hmm. our uh, point of view, mm -hmm. our demands, and they can do the same. And we can see if there is any common ground that could be reached. One of the fears, I think, in the back of the minds, certainly of many Americans and, and probably many policymakers, is that, that this openness to uh, some of these more strident groups may be in some way bad for Israel or giving a support for the enemies of, of Israel. As you see the Middle East... Uh, and you know at what time, uh, you know, during the time of the 67 war, the Arab states really vowed to destroy and, uh, and get, dismantle the state of Israel. Um, have we passed that in history? Uh, is there, uh, at this point in history, uh, do you think there is a, a, a genuine possibility of a threat to the existence of the state of Israel? Or can we simply assume that there is that kind of uh, tacit support from the Arab states? Uh, how, how much of a real Factor, do you think this issue is? Well, first of all, Libra, fragility the, of the let existence. us uh, correct uh, record. Mm -hmm. The only two times that that threat was mm -hmm. pronounced by any public figure was twice. Mm -hmm. Once back in 1947, and the second time, even before the official birth of Israel, mm -hmm. uh, by one of the demagogic leaders who never really was able to. Uh, even hurt Israel. Who is that? And uh, somebody by, by the name of Shukiri, who was uh, a Palestinian uh. Uh, demagogue. Uh, the second is Ahmadinejad mm -hmm. of uh, Iran. This was only two times that this threat was ever issued. Mm. No responsible Arab leader had ever, ever used that kind of language or that kind of threat. So that's one, just to correct the record. Two, is that we are past the uh, time where a whole state could be dismantled. We are, you are in global studies, you are an international relation expert. You know that the world states do not just wither away like that. Mm -hmm. And if they do, it is usually they collapse from within, mm -hmm. as happened with the Soviet Union or mm -hmm. many of the regimes in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. Three is that since President Sadat initiated uh, peace with Israel back in 1977, that's nearly 30 years ago, 31 years ago, uh, the state of Israel is guaranteed by the largest Arab state, which is Egypt. Mm -hmm. No Arab state will go to war with Israel without support from Egypt. Mm -hmm. uh, individual groups may do that, like guerrilla groups, uh, 
social movement and so on, but states, no. That is beyond, behind our back. Fourthly, people who were considered terrorists at one time turned out to be statesmen at another time. Take two examples, which I told one of your classes recently. Many people did not know that back in 1947, there is a public figure, a Jewish public figure by the name of Menachem Begin, who later on became prime minister. But in 1947, he was convicted by a British court, which was still the mandatory authority in Palestine, of being a terrorist for blowing up the King David Hotel. Oh, Jerusalem. against the British, against the British. Uh, yeah, the British mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. the ruling authority mm -hmm. in Palestine. Same thing happened with Sadat. He was convicted also as a terrorist mm -hmm. by Egyptian courts mm -hmm. for having assassinated one of our public figures in Egypt. Mm -hmm. So here are two convicted terrorists, Menachem Begin and Sadat in the 40s, they lived to the 70s, 30 years later, they both received a Nobel Prize for peace. Mm -hmm. So the idea of who is a terrorist and who is not a terrorist from one point of view is a freedom fighter from another point of view. So we have to withhold this kind of wild value judgments or unqualified value judgments until all the evidence are in. But isn't the Egyptian government in fact rather suspicious of Hamas? I mean, after all, there are kind of Muslim Brotherhood ties across the border between the Muslim Brotherhood, which is not one of the great supporters of Mubarak uh, and Hamas. And when the, the gates were open or when the, there was a hole in the fence and all of these Palestinians from Gaza uh, began to flood into Egypt, didn't Egypt immediately turn them back and and seal up the border again? It's all true, mm -hmm. but Mubarak is suspicious of everybody. He has suspicion <laughs> of me. <laughs> That's why I'm outside the country. You don't take leaders' suspicions to a grain of salt and to say Egypt. Yeah. No, Mubarak is suspicious yeah. of everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, so is every autocratic ruler. So is Mugabe of Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. So is uh, Gaddafi of Libya. So is Assad of Syria. Every autocratic leader in Middle East, in the Arab world, in Africa, in the third world generally, is very suspicious of everybody mm -hmm. because he is not legitimate enough, he is not uh, confident enough of his power, so he suspects every, you know, behind every tree mm -hmm. there is a conspiracy of some sort. But to get back to the Palestinian incident, which you referred to, mm -hmm. again to correct the record, this is Gaza, which had been under siege for the last two years, from the time that Hamas was elected to power in uh, February 2006. From that time on, the West, the United States, Israel, laid siege to the whole Gaza Strip, which is highly populated in a very small area. And the population, about 2 million Palestinians living in something like the county where this university is in, uh, just could not continue to survive. They had to break out of that iron cage around them. 
So they did toward the Egyptian borders two months ago. And for three or four days, they were able to at least buy some food and some medicine and clothes and all kinds of things. And then the Egyptian authority began to feel uh, uneasy about the flow of these kind of refugees or uh, fugitives from Gaza. So they drove them back and sealed the border again. And, but the situation could explode again. This has nothing to do with Hamas. It has to do with the people. People who are in desperate need for basic basics of life will seek to find those basics of life in any way, in any place. And it could be next time, it could be toward the Israel itself. Uh, so the problem has to be resolved in a more uh, humane and equitable manner. It could not be resolved by just military siege or police action or security measures alone. Well, but you raise the larger issue. Uh, we're now in the United States moving towards an election, and as um, some of our candidates remind us, the one name that's not going to be on the ballot is George Bush. Uh, there's going to be a regime change of some sort in the United States uh, soon. That might be a moment uh, for rethinking America's position in the Middle East. It might also be a moment uh, for a change in policy in the Middle East. And particularly with regard to Israel and Palestine, what do you think, would, what, what should be the first issues on the agenda to try to jumpstart a real peace process? Well, first of all, I think America needs to reconcile with the whole world, not just with the Middle East. Because according to every opinion poll, like Gallup and we and Harris and others, the approval rating for the United States policy has gone down to about 2%. Mm. And this is not just in the Middle East or in uh, hot spot areas, mm -hmm. but also in Europe, in Japan, in countries and regions that traditionally were very much pro-American. So there is a real problem, global real problem, that the United States new president has to attend to. Second, for the Middle East, this is one of the most troubled regions in the world. It also happened to be the biggest region that has reserves of oil and energy, and the world needs it. And therefore, it is not only just for human and uh, justice consideration, but also for expedient and interest consideration that the president of the new president of the United States must attend to this issue. The solutions, suggested solutions, for the problems of the Middle East have already been well laid out by all kinds of thinkers, including American statesmen who have been issuing reports and studies, foreign, uh, the uh, International uh, uh, Council on Foreign, uh, foreign Relations, uh, also uh, uh, James Baker Commission mm -hmm. that investigated both... Uh, it did include the Baker-Hamilton Commission uh, they, report, did exactly. have a section on, uh, Absolutely. on, they on have Palestine and Israel as a part a of the solution for Iraq. Very elaborate... Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Uh, plans mm -hmm. for solutions. So the president of the new president of the United States doesn't have to rediscover the wheel. 
these are uh, already plans and scenarios for dealing with the problems. All what he will need to do is to establish confidence with all the parties and to immediately start dealing with them, not waiting for the last year of his or her administration as Bush did and as Clinton did before him. Well, of course, Iraq is going to be very high on the agenda. They just can't, they might be able to push off the issue of Israel and Palestine, but, but not Iraq, and maybe the two are related. Uh, in the case of Iraq, what, would you, uh, what do you see as some of the most uh, critical issues that the new president will have to deal with? Well, my views on that, and I have stated that in writing several times, and I have spoken to several officials of the uh, Bush administration, so long as there is occupation, visible, visible presence of occupation, there will always be resistance, even if the occupiers are angels. Occupation means a resistance everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And you just imagine yourself as Americans, if your country is occupied, even by, as I said, by good guys, who are coming with all kind of goodwill, no, you will I, resist. After a while, you will resist. I've been to Baghdad. I, I know what it feels like to go through those checkpoints and Absolutely. see the American soldiers uh, yeah. checking you and shouting so, at you in English. Right, yes. Mm. So, so long as the occupation forces, mm. there will be violence and there will be resistance. So the first order is to withdraw American forces from the major population centers, from Baghdad, from Basra, from Mosul, to probably uh, zones or bases outside. Well, huge bases in the desert, so at least exactly. for present. Away yeah. from the visible eye mm-hmm, mm-hmm. until they get an Iraqi army or Iraqi security forces mm-hmm. trained enough mm-hmm. to take charge of their own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, invariably or alternatively, they could withdraw to Kuwait or to Kurdistan in the north. These are areas that are traditionally very friendly to the United States, and they feel that the Americans are liberators, not occupiers. Mm-hmm. Well, in these kind of countries, keep your forces there, and they, they will still be within minutes of deployment by air force or by rapid deployment. And should the need arise for intervention, they will be ready, but pull them out of the major population centers as soon as possible and get Iraqi army, Iraqi security forces uh, trained and give them charge. Does there also need to be some sort of regional negotiation and does Iran and Syria and Turkey and Saudi Arabia, the nearest neighbors, uh, have to be on board with some sort of a long-range strategic plan? If, If you can get them on board, that's fine. But the least you can do is to neutralize them. Well, they all have different interests. And they of course all they do. And, uh, and they, all of them, all of these names that you mentioned, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, did not have an interest in seeing democratic Iraq to start with. Hmm. The only neighbor that could have lived with a democratic Iraq would be Turkey and Kuwait. Hmm. Because both countries have elected democratically elected government. So democracy does not threaten them. Mm -hmm. But the regime in Syria and Saudi Arabia and in Iran 
definitely are threatened by a successful democratic Iraq. And that's why they have undermined uh, any stability scheme or any democratization scheme for Iraq. Mm. However, I think there is enough actors in the region that would be able to help in stabilizing Iraq, starting with these two countries, uh, Turkey and Kuwait, possibly also Jordan and Egypt. Mm. Uh, for a variety of reasons, these countries probably could come on board and could help. Uh, but ultimately, I think it should be an international responsibility, uh, a UN responsibility, an interim administration by the UN, as they did in Kosovo, as they did in uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina at, at one time. I think that probably would be the ideal solution. Does the U.S. need to do something dramatic uh, to kind of open up areas, uh, lines of reconciliation uh, under a new president that would, that could dramatically transform the image of uh, America's role in the world or the way in which it sees itself in the community of nations? Or is it simply a matter of having a new face and some changed policies? Mark, I think you are raising a very important question, and I'm glad you did. Because even in a, in a region like the Middle East, as much as people detest American foreign policy, Yet, they have a lot of goodwill toward the American people. What is the proof of that? The proof of that is the following. Until two years ago, until three, four years ago, until, let's say, 9-11, um, until September 2003, mm -hmm. there were only two American universities in the region. The American University in Beirut, AUB, and the American University in Cairo, AUC. Today, there are eight American universities in the region. Hmm. They all began in the last five years. Hmm. What does this tell us? It tells us that the good things about America, like higher education, like good business, like technology, is welcomed everywhere in the world including the Arab world, including the Middle East. And these are the big selling points of America as a country, America as a culture, America as a vision. And I think a new president of the United States must capitalize on that and must try to reconcile. And I have said in different occasions recently that the new president of the United States must address the world and follow probably the example of Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela established a commission after he got to power, despite all the decades of apartheid and discrimination against the blacks in South Africa, and despite all the hostility toward the white racist regime of South Africa. Yet Mandela, in victory, rose up to the occasion and established this commission that was called and had become a classic example of reconciliation, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I'm suggesting, I'm taking advantage of this program to suggest that that should be one of the early acts of a new president of the United States, is to establish a commission of wise men, mm. both Americans and international, 
to see what the world had in the way of grievances towards the United States. Hmm. And to have the courage and the confidence to say, well, we're sorry. And the modesty and the humility, yes, which are not sure. American traits. <laughs> yes, but why not? Yeah. I mean, that would be a great act right. of uh, selflessness and a great act of generosity mm -hmm. and goodwill. Mm -hmm. Because the world is ready mm -hmm. for America to assume mm -hmm. the mantle of moral leadership in the world. Mm. It just needs a little bit of uh, mm. a push. And I hope that the new president of the United States would do that. Hmm. Some of the candidates talk about hope and vision, and uh, I suppose what you're suggesting is that this is a message that uh, could be delivered to the world as well as to the American populace. Absolutely. Hmm. It is a must. Hmm. I remember when I was in, uh, uh, in Gaza interviewing uh, uh, some leaders of Hamas, one of the uh, fellows taking me to meet the uh, the leader, Dr. Rantisi, was uh, uh, was a young student. Yes. He was very anti-American. <clears throat> Yet he whispered to me, he said, can you get me admission to the University of California? <laughs> That's <even> precisely. <laughs> and, you know, both of them are genuine feelings. <laughs> there's feeling of ang anger, mm -hmm. but there's also a feeling of admiration. Mm -hmm. And it is a question of which one will take the upper hand. And I'm suggesting by an act, a generous act, of American president addressing the world and saying we know that we have not always been right or correct in dealing with problems of the world. We are ready to open our minds and our hearts and to reconcile and to start a new page and act like that will go a long way in shifting, creating, and turning the wheels back to America's favor. Now, you came to the United States yourself many years ago as a graduate student at the University of Washington. You were, I believe you were something of a student activist when you were a graduate student here. Uh, you were president of the, uh, the, US, Arab, students. the Amer Arab Students Association in the United States? Yes, I was. And these were the great years that have left <laughs> the activism as part of my character. So you learned your uh, activism in uh, the student in America, movement in the yes. Uh, these were the years of mm -hmm. the 60s, right. the anti-war uh, movement, mm -hmm. the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. the women's movement, the environmentalist movement. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, I met my wife in one of the rallies, anti-war <laughs> rallies. And uh, so, you know, I've learned this activism as much as I learned everything else. <laughs> Uh, during those uh, years. Well, I was in Berkeley in the 60s myself, so we're kind of Absolutely. fellow old radicals. But uh, as you look back now, have you seen uh, the kind of uh, student uh, climate in the United States change as you uh, remember your own activism in the United States in the, in the 60s? And now you see you know, present-day you know, students? Uh, after the 60s, many of the American campuses went off the activism track. Mm -hmm. And I often wondered whether the 60s were really a fluke or was it just a moment that will be repeated again. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to say I've lived long enough mm -hmm. to see it being repeated now mm -hmm. with millions of young people flocking 
into the American election campaign mm -hmm. in 2007, mm -hmm. 2008, mm -hmm. it gives me, again, uh, hope mm -hmm. that a new generation of Americans will come out and will force their wish, their will, and I hope American politicians mm -hmm. will heed the message by younger Americans, mm -hmm. and I hope these younger Americans will remind us again of the Peace Corps generation, mm -hmm. of the free speech movement generation that you are part of at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the America that the world mm -hmm. looks at mm -hmm. with great admiration. Well, last night you met some of our students who were interested in issues in, in Darfur and, and, uh, and, and Sudan who were, uh, were protesting the, um, uh, the, uh, the Chinese situation in Tibet, uh, who were concerned about human rights issues uh, around the world. Uh, do these people remind you of uh, this earlier generation, or do you think it's a more domesticated uh, No, version? no, no, very much so. Yeah. I was very impressed, mm -hmm. and, it, you know, I left the students last night. Mm -hmm with renewed hope mm -hmm. in America, mm -hmm. with this kind of young generation, mm -hmm. very aware, very sensitive, very concerned. Mm -hmm. They really cared. Mm -hmm. And it is, again, almost something that I have missed for the mm -hmm. interim 30 <laughs> years between the 60s and mm -hmm. now. You're saying autocrats are threatened by human rights activists. As you look at now, not just the Middle East or Egypt, but around the world, uh, you can see uh, countries like China uh, that seem to bristle over over the uh, the, the power of the activism of uh, of the, the support for human rights in Tibet. Uh, is this a misplaced fear, or, or do you think that human rights activists really do have even more power than they think they have? You keep on talking about yourself as simply a modest professor who shouldn't be threatening the Mubarak regime, but in, a, in another sense, aren't you very threatening? <laughs> you know, when it is repeated to you that you are a threat, you are a threat, you are a threat, you begin to believe it. <laughs> but <laughs> I think there is a serious concern. I wouldn't say threat to China, but a concern, and the leadership should be concerned. Mm -hmm. There are a number of three, well, there are three or four issues that China has to deal with. Given their economic preeminence in the world today, and giving their growing power, they should not deny any group inside China, any ethnic group. And they have the Tibets, uh, Tibetan, the people of Tibet, Tibet, and also a Muslim minority in Western China. These two communities have legitimate demands, not for separation from China, but for autonomy for respect of their own culture and their own way of life. And it will not hurt China. Huge, over a billion population country to grant these groups their autonomous and their human and uh, political rights. Uh, so that is something that I hope for. And I'm glad that the Olympics uh, which will take place in a few weeks from now, were an occasion to highlight some of the grievances of some of these communities. And even the Dalai Lama said that he does not want Tibet to separate from China. And he 
actually supports the Olympics, but he's also appealing to the Chinese leadership to start a dialogue. And this is a kind of spirit that I have myself and that I address every government in the world. There's other thing that the Chinese are engaged in, which is, again, of concern to me, and that is supporting some of the autocratic rulers in Africa, like Bashir of Sudan, like Mugabe of Zimbabwe, uh, in a very opportunistic manner. For trade purposes, they are willing to support these regimes, even when these regimes are oppressing their own people, like in the case of Sudan in Darfur, mm -hmm. or like Mugabe, who is refusing to release even the results of his own elections, an election that his own government conducted two weeks ago. Uh, and yet the Chinese are supportive of these autocrats. And that is uh, bound to backfire on popular feeling toward China in some of these third world countries. And of course, the Chinese position is that, uh, you know, this is simply a business deal. You shouldn't uh, meddle in the sovereignty of other countries. Uh, but do you feel that there are moments when in that sense of meddling is appropriate for human rights uh, issues to use the leverage of trade or, or political uh, agreements uh, in order to, uh, to have some leverage on another country's uh, position on human rights? Well, you know, language could be very tricky. So the word meddling, for example. Uh, when the Chinese try to project their economic power in any part of the world. That could be considered meddling. It is a question of meddling on the side of the governments or meddling on the side of the people. And M1 say, well, if you have to meddle, meddle at least on the side of the people, err on the side of the people. But the Chinese so far are erring on the side of autocratic regime. And that is regrettable because I love China. I have been to China. Again, I took my students for the first time ever mm -hmm. to China some 30 years ago. And so I have a lot of good, you know, warm feeling towards the Chinese people and toward China and its achievement. Mm -hmm. But I also, because of that affection toward China, mm -hmm. that I feel compelled to criticize the leadership when it deserves to be criticized. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in addition to the traditional ways of thinking about human rights activism, uh, the most visible is taking a protest out to the streets or writing an op-ed piece or using the media or political and trade leverage. Does the Internet now and, and, and uh, World Wide Web provide whole new uh, resources for mobilization, for critique, uh, for uh, connections among activisms that didn't exist before? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example. Uh, last week on uh, April 6th there was a nationwide strike in Egypt that was triggered by one girl called Isra hmm. using this new technology hmm. cell messages and blogs hmm. and she managed of course obviously the atmosphere was ripe and that's why there was a massive response mm -hmm. to her call 
in protesting and striking against the Mubarak regime, mm -hmm. both for the inflation that people are now beginning to feel, especially the poor, but also because of the human rights violations that have become rampant mm -hmm. in recent months. And this is just one girl. And she is representative of a whole generation that is using this new technology. And it's hard for to governments to control the internet. And exactly. And it's very hard, even mm -hmm. though they have arrested some of them, including she. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you arrest one, there will always be 10 appearing mm -hmm. the following day. You arrest 10, there will be 100. Mm -hmm. This is a movement that could not be quelled. And the only way you can deal with it is to listen and to respond. Mm -hmm. To respond constructively not by using this kind of uh, heavy-handed mm -hmm. pressure tactics. As you look at the future of human rights activism around the world, are you optimistic? I mean, it was said that no time in history have been more people enslaved, uh, and no time in history has human rights been uh, such a contested issue. Um, how, what's your feeling about the future? Mark, as an activist, you cannot afford but be optimistic. If you are not optimistic, you have no business being an activist. Because activism, by definition, is one, a deep belief in change. Two, is that you, as an activist, could be part of that change. And with these two elements in the definition of activism, you got to be optimistic and I have every reason to be optimistic I have mm. seen things changing around me mm. not always to my liking but enough to my liking to keep me going mm. uh, so despite all the miserable situation that I was in several times and the unpleasant situation I'm in right now living in exile away from my family from my students from my center yet a sense of optimism never leaves me I see people like yourself engaging me, inviting me, welcoming me, and this is happening everywhere, except in my own country. <laughs> so it makes up for the ingratitude that the Mubarak regime had toward me. Uh, but nevertheless, as I said, there's enough to be optimistic about. Even if you take the issue of human rights, at no time in history did more people enjoy more democracy than now. At no time in history were people better fed than they are now. Mm -hmm. I think the difference is now with every human rights violation, with every famine or near famine or shortages, the world becomes aware of it because of the new media, mm -hmm. because of the internet, because of CNN. So it is really more knowledge of the problems than a real increase in the absolute size or intensity of those problems. At least that's the way I look at it. Sadudin, you've been a hero to human rights activists around the world, and today I think we've understood why. And it's been such a privilege to talk with you, and we've enjoyed so much your presence in Santa Barbara. I hope you'll come again, but I hope someday you'll be able to return once more home again. Well, thank you very much, Mark, and my good wishes, my good uh, for you and for your students and for the community of Santa Barbara. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.